My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. I had to work really, really hard to buy that first one. And that, that one was the one that, you know, leapfrogged me into, you know, the rest of the ones that I've purchased from there on in. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Torrin Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with Claire Monkley, owner of Love Finance who assists owner-occupiers and investors to purchase property. Hear about her childhood stories growing up on a farm with 10 other siblings, how she leapfrogged her way from one property to another, her simple long-term strategy and much, much more. Monkley has a company called Love Finance through which she assists owner-occupiers and investors to purchase property, whether it be buying their first property or finding out what their goals are along their property journey. I sort of um, usually help my clients purchase their first property and then we set up strategies to help them get through to their, you know, their next step for their investment properties or whatever their goals might be along their journey sometimes even right into their retirement because, you know, I like to sort of plan with them maybe one year, five years, you know, 10 years and help them set those goals so that they can get to where they want to be. As part of her job on any given day, Monkley does a lot of research around aspects integral to buying a property and meets with clients. I do a lot of research. So I do um, a lot of research obviously around um, what rates are, what's happening with interest rates, what's happening with bank policy. I also, um, every day I do some education around investment properties because um, that is uh, something else, as I said, that I do do with my clients and I like to just be always um, learning so that I'm, you know, I'm at the best that I can be that I can share with my clients. So that's pretty much what my day is. And then I'm, you know, meeting with my clients, working out their strategies and then putting those strategies together and then getting them into a parcel to go off to the lender. Education for Monkley is very important as only through education can she properly advise her clients on how to invest in property and help them secure a better retirement. People are just so busy nowadays, as you are aware. And so they're very, very time poor. And, um, I think it's part of my role is to make sure that I can help them, you know, just learn what other sort of strategies are out there for them to help them to have a better retirement. I mean, at the moment, you know, the statistics are quite high on the amount of people that are retiring on 
$21,000 a year. And that's a little bit scary for me and, and for a lot of other people. So I really do believe that education is the key to anything that we do around investing. And I actually assist my clients with that education and um, they can then make an informed decision about where they want to purchase a property. It's not necessarily the best property to buy next door um, because you like the house, because, you know, it could be where you live, could be at the top of the market, you know, when it's peaked out. And so it might be a little while before you get some capital growth. Um, So, you know, it's sort of giving them a little bit more of an open channel that can open their eyes to what else is possible in other areas in Australia. Growing up in a little town, Monkley was one of 11 children in the family and lived on a farm where they grew their own vegetables and farmed their own cattle. I actually grew up in a little town called Morpeth and that's um, the oldest inland port in New South Wales, believe it or not, and it's quite a little touristy town now. And I'm one of 11 children, so mum and dad, yes, we lived on a farm and... um, Mum and Dad obviously never had a TV, (laughs) as the joke goes. But, yeah, eight brothers and I have two sisters. Um, Most of us are probably self-employed. Dad dad was self-employed. Well, I don't remember him ever not being self-employed, to be honest. And I watched them work very, very hard, you know, their whole life, as you do, as you could imagine, trying to feed and educate 11 children. Um, We had quite a good life on the farm. We used to grow our own vegetables, have our own beef, you know, so we sort of were pretty self-sustainable there. Because the parents had to manage such a large family, they had a lot of systems in place to ensure everyday tasks got done. Went on to um, go to school in Maitland, so went to the Catholic schools there in Maitland and that's that's pretty much, you know, where I grew up. Um, That's where I learnt, I suppose, from my dad and my mum about you know, making sure that you do have, um, you know, obviously growing up in a family of 11 children, you had to have systems in place <laughs> to be doing things, whether it was getting dressed on time, making sure the breakfast is ready, you know, the big pot of porridge is ready of a morning for everyone to come out when they've, you know, one bathroom, brush their teeth, you know, wash their face, whatever had to be done. And um, so we did have a plan, you know, mum, mum was quite regimented how we had our sandwiches and all that done. So I think I learned you know, obviously a lot of those schools from from mum and dad. My father, although there was a lot of money around for us, one thing I was very aware of is that my father bought two other properties and that's where I know that helped them whenever they decided to sell that property at any one time, it was for a particular reason and that helped mum and dad to probably have a little bit more um, quality of life in their retirement than perhaps they would have had they have not done that. So that's when that I began thinking about, gee, what would it be like to have a number of properties that actually brought me in income? Mum and dad had, theirs was land and they had beef cattle on it. So it did bring them in income, but just in a different way. She then goes on to give a little background knowledge about the age gap between herself and her other 10 siblings. I hope my mother never hears this, but um, my two eldest brothers are actually the same age for 20 days. So that's how close they were. So get that. So my, my second eldest brother was born on the 3rd of August and my 
eldest brother was born on the 23rd of August the previous year. So um, that's a little bit of a joke because they are the same age for those 20 days. Um, and then there's pretty much only about a year between us. And then the last child, so the 10th child, the 11th child, there's five years. He wasn't, that was a bit of an accident. But yeah, we're all pretty close. We're very, yeah, yeah, very close. Living on a farm was not easy and was often without many of the modern conveniences we take for granted today. Furthermore, money was not plentiful, especially since the parents went through the 1955 flood in the Maitland area. We did live on a farm. We had, like, we didn't have running water. We didn't have an inside toilet, you know, like a lot of people did back then. So, you know, our toilet was way up the back, in the, like the back shed, you know, and it was digging the holes to empty the pan toilet and cutting the clothes downstairs to the copper. I can only just vaguely remember that. But um, my mum and dad, I wasn't alive at the time, but my mum and dad lost absolutely everything in the 55 flood. Um, Maitland area was very renowned for floods, but the 55 flood was the biggest flood that they've ever had. And a lot of people did lose everything. It was quite horrendous. And um, my dad um, had just bought his first truck and he went in to get out. There's a couple of women um, that were pregnant in what we call Phoenix Park, which is the little area we lived in at Morpeth. And the water came up so fast that dad actually, the truck got covered in water. They had to get picked up in a boat. So dad lost his truck, which was pretty sad. Um, yeah, so it was pretty, it was a uh, challenging times, mum said, you know, a lot of times people couldn't pay them in money. So they would get paid in, you know, pumpkins or potatoes or bread, you know, different ways of, well, the, the old days of bartering, wasn't it? Monkley recounts some childhood memories for us growing up on the farm and even through times were hard at some points. Mum and dad didn't have a car, so we didn't really, we didn't go anywhere, you know, um, I can remember my nana coming pick us, picking us up a couple of times to um, go different places. We walked to school. We walked a fair way to school. And when we were quite young, that you know, when you're five, walking to school, that was pretty huge. I can remember my mother trying to teach me to ride a push bike. And we had a magpie that used to live in the tree in the loosened paddock across from our house. And mum used to take us up onto this little hill and let us <laughs> Let's go. So we had to either, you know, pedal or fall off. And this magpie used to chase us. Oh man, pick at our heads. I can, yeah, so remember that. It was just funny times and hard times, you know. But yeah, it was good. It, we had lots of fun, you know. But there was tough times. Definitely, there was tough times. But there was some fun times as well. On the farm, Monkley milked the cows and made her own ice cream, which is a far cry from today's modernized life where everything we get is from the supermarket. Like to go and milk the cow to get your own milk and to make your own butter. And we used to make our own ice cream. You know, so we did all of that. Our Saturday morning was um, devoted to, when we were older, was devoted to cooking all those things, all the cakes for our school lunches. We did that every Saturday morning. That was the girls' role and mum's role. And, And I'm not talking... I'm talking slab cakes, you know, homemade sponges and chocolate cakes and apple pies and grandma pies. And mum used to make her own pickles, preserve her own vegetables. You know, that's that's what it was like, as well as, um, you know, mum rearing us. So, I, you know what? I did not even know my mother could knit. 
until I was about 35 and I went to her home one day and she was knitting. I said, what are you doing? She said, I'm knitting your father a scarf. And I went, I didn't know you could knit. And she went, well, when have I ever had time to knit? <laughs> I thought, yeah, fair enough, mum. That's fair enough. But I did not know she could knit. I didn't know she could play the piano. She learned the piano when she went to school. Didn't know that. So she could play the piano. Yeah. In Monkley's family, as the older kids grew up, they started to look after their younger siblings and she recounts these happy moments. As more came along, obviously that's we did sort of take up that role because we had to. You know, we just, I can remember pushing my little brother, you know, one of my little brothers along in the pram, just taking them for a, a long walk. And we, and we could, like we were on a farm road. So, you know, we would just go and be gone for a couple of hours. You know, mum knew she didn't have to worry about us because to be perfectly honest, nobody ever came down the road where we were. So we could just put whoever in the stroller and all the pram and off we'd go. And, and mum knew we'd be perfectly fine, you know. Dad was pretty strict, so we never got up to too much mischief I can tell you <laughs> well sorry that 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 I know about my I, I am hearing stories now of my even my younger brothers some of the stuff that they got up to my god my blunt runs cold I went if dad ever found out you did that he would have murdered you one of Monkley's fondest memories was when she would go to one of her cousin's farms one thing we used to do is um where we lived, as I said, it was Morpeth, but Phoenix Park was a little farming area. And so dad, dad and mum had a farm there and we had cousins that had farms, you know, up and around. And one of our cousins used to grow, have turnips, so grow turnip patches, you know. And we used to go over there and I, I don't know if you if you like raw term, turnips, sorry, but that was one of the things we did like. And we used to go over and sit in the turnip patch. And anybody that likes turnips and eats too many of them knows how Badly, you get a pain in your stomach from from doing that. But that was so sweet and delicious straight off the farm that you just we used, that's what we do just sit there and eat these turnips. I can remember that as plain as anything. Providing a perspective on how the lives of different generations change and evolve over time, Monkley recounts something her mother told her the other day. My mum was telling me the other day, and you we forget we have people in our world that do this. But mum was talking about how her because mum's the youngest of seven children and mum's eldest brother used to take them to the dances in the horse and sulky and to hear mum talk about going to the dances and you know taking people around in the horse and sulky and I'm like oh mum I've forgotten that that's the generation that you grew up in and it's just fascinating to talk to people that I don't know they've got a whole different outlook on on life as a younger person you know when they were a younger person to what we do and as you were saying about your children and even my children and my grandchildren what their outlook is on life and what it will be when they get older do you know what I mean does it's just I just to think that there was somebody around who was shoeing horses that I know that is my mother and that's what she'd help do is just fascinating because I I never saw that as a child, obviously, and perhaps you haven't either, but that was her world. Monkley went on to high school and during year 10 was offered two jobs, which then led to various other jobs. So I left school and went to become, go into hairdressing. So I did that for a number of years and then I ended up moving to Queensland. One of my brothers moved to there. So I did different different types of things up there, bar work, restaurant work, you know, just for a bit of a change. Um, then I came back um, 
got married and then, you know, obviously had children and, um, yeah, just didn't work for a while. Well, sorry, let me rephrase that. My husband and I had our own business, so I worked from home and helped him run that business. And then, you know, unfortunately when we separated, I I obviously didn't have a job anymore. So then I worked, went and worked for a, a mortgage broker and that's how I have come into the field that I am in now and have been myself personally in my business for the last 22 years. Coming up after the break, we'll delve into Claire Monkley's journey and how she started in property. So then I found myself out of work and I was fortunate enough to go and work for this mortgage broker and I was watching him actually assist his clients to build their wealth through property. Her worst investing moment. The gentleman I invested the money with declared himself bankrupt. So left me in quite a, um, so I'm talking this would be 10 years ago, nearly 11 years ago. Some of the valuable lessons she had picked up along the way. I'm more educated and and I know, you know, there's, there's more strategic planning that you can put around with where you purchase now. And that's next. I'm Tyrone Shump and you're listening to Property Investory. After working for a mortgage broker, she began to do the structuring for clients to assist them in building their wealth and realized she loved doing it, which led to buying money to help herself as well. When my husband and I separated, I, um, you know, as I said, I worked for his company or our company. So then I found myself out of work and I was fortunate enough to go and work for this mortgage broker and I was watching him actually assist his clients to build their wealth through property. And I actually was the one eventually that was doing the structuring for them and I loved it. I just just absolutely loved what it could actually, you know, what borrowing money could do to help you leapfrog yourself into a better position. Now for me, being a single mother, two young children, my income didn't support enough for me to be paying my small mortgage. I had to buy, you know, get a mortgage on a house. And so I knew being in the mortgage broking world that I had to work for two years in a casual job before a bank would even take 50% of that income into consideration for servicing. And I know you understand that, servicing the debt and making sure I can repay back the loan that I that I have. So I actually went and got a second job working in the vineyards. And I can remember for two years, I took two days off a month. I worked five days a week in mortgage broking and I worked Saturdays and Sundays, all days in the winery. And until I could get that income recognised, that a bank would take it for servicing for me to buy my first investment property. Now, I, I looked around. I couldn't afford much, but I found this house on the market. So, it, it's in Thornton, again, in the Hunter Valley, and it was um, it's between Newcastle and Maitland. So, let's say, you know, it's right in the middle, let's say. And it was $119,000. And I took my boss to have a look at it, and he's like, oh, God, Claire, you know, and I said, but it's the worst house in the best street. To this day, Monkley still has that property. 
and she has also done a couple more projects such as buying a block of land, subdividing into two and building two properties on it. I've been told that's what you buy, that's what I've read about. So I bought that house and I still have that house today and it's it's about – it's gone up in value. I've done not a thing to it. It's never not been rented um, and I think that's probably worth about $410,000 today and then from that property then I bought my first one in Newcastle and I – even though I lived in Maitland, didn't come to Newcastle very much – but bought my second one, bought an apartment here, and I think that I paid, I paid one hundred twenty-three thousand for that. And now that was valued just recently at five hundred twenty thousand dollars. So they're just a couple. I mean, I've got more. I've I've done the, um, you know, buy a block of land, subdivide it off, build two. I've done buy the corner block, put the granny flat on, so I've got one of those. So I've done sort of different types of things. I'm renovation is not my my thing, um, but I I know lots of you know I've got friends that do that and make quite good money on it when it's a you know a good market. So that's how I got into that my first property. I I had to work really really hard to buy that first one, and that that one was the one that you know, leapfrog me into, you know, the rest of the ones that I've purchased from there on in. This first property Monkley purchased 16 years ago and since then, out of all her properties, she has only sold one, which showcases her long-term strategy. She then goes on to tell us a bit more about the property which she eventually sold. It, it, property is always a long-term strategy, I believe, you know, and that's that's what has worked for me. I mean, I know other people buy them and flip, but I, you know, I'm not I'm not handy like that, as I said. So I, my strategy is long-term hold, and and I just take the equity out of out of one, and then I go on and buy another one, and that sort of has allowed me um, to to hold the portfolio that I have. What I what I must actually you know, point out to listeners also is that I ended up selling my little house. So I bought a little house when I got divorced and it was, I'm pretty sure I paid $135,000 for that house. And yes, it was on for $155,000 and I said to the real estate agent, I've only got $135,000 that I know I can you know, purchase a home for, and I can remember his his name was David, and I can remember he said to me, Claire, they will never accept that offer. They they won't. He said it's you know it's in Lawn. Anybody that knows the Hunter Valley and knows Maitland and knows Lawn, it's a very prestigious area. And I said, well, that's all I've got. It's an offer. You've got to take it to them. Well, they accepted it. So that was. Um, you know, that was my buy into that. So I really picked up 20,000 equity in there straight away. But I did eventually sell that house because I, I moved to Newcastle. So I haven't sold investment property other than just that one, but that owner-occupied home I sold because I was limited by my borrowing capacity because of that. So I started to rent and then I went on and, and purchased properties. So that was my strategy. I, I, I've only just two years ago purchased my next owner-occupied. I've rented for, I don't know, 10, 10 years. And then I've just bought an apartment in right in Newcastle. 
You're the typical Rentvester then. That's what I love about it. <laughs> oh, Rentvester. Of course, that's a new word that wasn't around when I did it yet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, it does limit us having that owner-occupied property sometimes. And, you know, even every now and then now, I think, oh, you know, I could be doing so much more. But how much, you know, how much more do you need to be doing really? I suppose I'm not, you know, I'm not as young as I used to be. I can just sit back on with what I've got now and just, you know, there's probably another property cycle in there, you know, one, maybe two for me in some of those areas because I think the good thing too is when you don't buy in the same area, you know, and I'm sure you're aware of this, you know, different areas go up at different times. So therefore, if one area's, you know, peaked, you might have one in another area that hasn't and so that one will peak and the other one that slowed down, you know, you might see another peak come up. So, I, and that is what I've absolutely witnessed without a shadow of a doubt. Monkley talks about what a property portfolio consists of. Somebody asked me this yesterday. So, I've I've had nine, nine, ten and I've sold two. So one being my owner-occupied and one being one here on, I had one on the harbour in Newcastle, but I chose to sell that one so that I could have some extra funds to buy the new one that I wanted to live in because it was bigger. For Monkley, one of her worst investing moments was when the person she did a joint venture with on a property declared himself bankrupt, leaving her unable to settle the property because she didn't have the funds. So I actually invested some money with a a colleague of mine, his his brother, who was a developer. So I actually put quite a lot of money into that until this property on the harbour was ready. And the gentleman I invested the money with declared himself bankrupt. So left me in quite a, um, so I'm talking, this would be 10 years ago, nearly 11 years ago. So it was like $280,000, which was my deposit for the property I was purchasing and what happened was I didn't have the funds I didn't have all the funds that I needed to settle on that property so this is what can be scary because I brought it off the plan invested that money for that short amount of well you know it's going to be two years to till it was to be completed so I thought I'll invest that money there because it's going to do this this and this and of course when I started asking for the money back it wasn't coming back and I then learned what what had really gone on. And that was naivety and my fault as well. You know, I put my hand up and go, you know, I have to take 100% responsibility for that. However, that was very challenging times because that's when the GFC hit. And it wasn't my intention to hold the property. I was going to flip it, couldn't sell it because lots of people put them on, you know, put their units back onto the market and we couldn't, nobody could sell. So what I had to do then at that time was borrow a 97% low doc loan. Now, that's I was paying about 14% interest when interest rates at that time were about 6 or 7%. This was a very hard period for Monkley and she felt quite isolated and alone, afraid to tell people about her struggles for fear they would judge her for her mistake. That was very, very challenging, I can tell you. I had many nights where, you know, I will say, well, I ate baked beans on toast. Someone said, we're having for dinner. I'd say, baked dinner, baked beans on toast. So um, that was, you know, 
I can tell you, I had nights where I would lie in bed and I'd be sweating, thinking, where am I getting the money from for the, for the mortgage, you know? Particularly when you're on your own, that's, you know, that's a challenge too, you know? You've got no one that you can just even run your thoughts by around it. And, and, and I think too, prides can get in the way too. You think, God, who can I talk to them about, about this? And I don't want to, you know, oh, they'll think I'm an idiot for doing this. But I tell you what, I survived it. I, I, at the time, I didn't ever think I would, but I did. And I, what I ended up doing was I sold half of it. So this was a good strategy and a good lesson for me because I just happened to be talking to someone one day and I said, and I did say, because I were a mortgage broker, and I said to them, look, gee, I don't know, you know, I think I'm going to have to sell this property or sell half of it. I just don't know, you know, what to do. And she said, oh, Claire, you know, we'd be interested in doing that. So we would love to get into property and we've just not thought about how, how to go about it. She said, but be happy to come in with you. So I sold 50% of that property to her. And that I can tell you was an enormous thing, a relief off my mind worrying about this mortgage. Luckily, she even managed to make some money from this property and as a result of her learning experience, believes education is the key to success when it comes to property investing. We went on to actually make a bit of money from that, not a lot because it was that whole 10 years for that GFC, you know, before things picked up again, but I did make a bit of money on it. But to me, that was my worst investment. But it was only because of circumstance, you know, me putting the money where it went and disappearing and the GFC hitting. So. They're not things that you can predict, but it's trying to think of the way to come out of it. And this is the odd thing. I never asked any of my siblings if they wanted to come into that property. And I think it was because I was embarrassed or I think they thought I, I would I was a failure. And, you know, to this day, a couple of them say, oh, you know, wished you had have asked us. And I just like, oh, yeah, well, I just... You know, I felt bad. I was just in a really bad spot and a very bad place mentally, I suppose. But I came through it and went on to be, you know, bigger and stronger. And I think that, that you know, it scared me, but now I'm like, oh, well, you know, it's all right. I, well, I suppose now I'm more educated and that's the difference. I'm more educated and and I know, you know, there's there's more strategic planning that you can put around with where you purchase now. That's the difference. It's the education. On the flip side, she shares with us one of her best investing moments where a caveat on the property turned out to be a wonderful deal for her. I um, bought a, purchased a block of land out at um, Mudgee and somebody was going to buy it and they there was a, and this is where people just maybe need to look a little bit deeper. Um, was going to purchase this block of land. There was a, a a caveat in the contract that these particular people didn't um, weren't comfortable with. But I sort of sent the contract off to my solicitor. She looked at it, you know, went through it, and she said, "Look, I don't think this will be an issue down the track because the the whole plan for that block of land was to actually subdivide it." But in the contract, it actually said something like, um, "You know, the developer, you know, won't allow." Um, two dwellings on one block. But there was, I can't remember the exact wording, but it was only while they were developing. So once they were out of it, you know, my sister said, look, this is only why they hold it, but they're long gone, so I can't see an issue. And that's, these other people missed that opportunity, but I was able to, um, 
get a great opportunity where I went on and built these two fabulous houses that, you know, I know Margie went back. Margie, again, it's it's in, um, it's probably three hours from Sydney, just to give you a bit of a um, an idea. And so it was, it is mining, but it does have other things. It's got agricultural, um, you know, horse studs, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful um country town and so it did pull back I, my plan was to sell one one financial year and sell one the next but again there was the downturn in the coal mine industry so I rented them always been rented positively geared and now I, I probably that was probably five years ago but they're now sort of coming back because there's been a big announcement so the values of the properties there have actually come back to a little bit more than what I was originally going to sell them for five years ago. So um, I'm I'm thinking maybe I might sell one of those this financial year. I'm just going to see how it goes, but maybe I will sell one of those. But that was a great aha moment for me because I thought, you know, you've just got to look a little bit deeper into something before you actually say no to it. Um, because sometimes it's, you know, it can be our own misconception of what's or the understanding of what's in a contract. And that's when, you you know, you have your team of experts around you that, that actually assist you with those things. On this block of land that she bought, where the caveat in its contract put off other people, actually yielded a high return. It was a, a large block of land um, in, a, in a subdivision that had been going for, for quite a while. And I, I honestly think the reason why this particular block hadn't sold was because of this caveat that was in there that no that a lot of people must have thought it was still um valid but it wasn't as my as I explained my sister said no it's only if they the developers were still part of the development but they were no longer part of it she looked into that and that's that's you know was the case so I was able to put two um two homes, individual houses on it. So one was a three-bedroom, two-bathroom, one-car, and the second one was just three-bedroom, one-bathroom, one-car. Beautiful little houses. I got a local builder who was highly recommended, and I have to tell you, he was amazing. When I went out and saw those houses for the first time, I said to him, my God, you have done an amazing job. And you know what his words to me were? I'll never forget them. He said, Claire, that's what you paid me to do. And I went, well, yeah, I did, <laughs> but you know, you don't always get get that, you know, and and it's like that's like a two and a half hour drive for me to get there, so it wasn't somewhere where I was going out and having a look at, but I did have a project manager that was keeping an eye on it. So, um, that to me that was a re- that was a really good um, a really good deal, and the granny flat one was as well. I have to tell you that returns us some incredible money. So I bought that one with my daughter. And it was a great big corner block and we just were able to come in. We we It had an easement so we couldn't put a separate house on it but we built a little granny flat and the granny flat cost us about $128,000. And so now that property is giving us about a, I don't know, 7.5% return because of the granny flat that's on it and where it's situated here, not, not far from Newcastle. So it's only probably 15 minutes from the CBD of Newcastle.
So, inspired by Claire Monkley's journey, we'll keep the conversation going in a future episode of Property Investory. We'll discuss the strategy. So, one of the the tools I have is a calculator that actually shows if you purchase one investment property and you can put in what your existing debt is, what your interest rate is, and if you purchase just one investment property, when the point of payoff can be. How she matches clients to the right lenders. The lender that I've now got him approved with, they he fits in their age policy, he fits in their DSR, so their debt level, and he fits within their LVR, so, so their loan to value ratio. What she would say to herself 10 years ago. And I, I have to pinch myself because I go, how did this little country girl get to be sitting in this room with these people? And that's next time in a future episode of Property Investory. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.